This is Detention, a podcast dedicated to candid conversations about education. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Lopez, a global leader, author, speaker, coach, consultant, and entrepreneur who opened a school to close a prison. Join me as I share my insights and bring fellow disruptors to serve time in conversation. Rebels, let's get into some good trouble. Welcome to another episode of Detention. Today's topic is actually in the form of a question. Who cares if educators are leaving? Now, I think it's important that I share a little bit of background context because then it will all make some sense and why we need to engage in this conversation. So my producer, Rondell, tagged me in a Twitter post last month. It was towards the end of last month. And the person who wrote it is at woke STEM teacher. She wrote today. My mom told me 26 teachers are quitting from her school after this year. That's all the kindergarten teachers, all the fourth grade teachers, all the fifth grade teachers, all but one first grade teacher, all but one second grade teacher, all but one third grade teacher. There were 155,000 likes and nearly 15,000 retweets. I need you to understand that this must have resonated with so many people across the globe that it was able to go what we would consider viral, right? And so immediately I said to myself, "Who, who cares? This is a school and who is actually enraged about this what are they doing about this now the first initial response is always like what is the principal doing and I don't necessarily know that it has anything to do with the principal we do know that there are a lot of issues that are happening across the board as it relates to the pandemic and what teachers are experiencing as burnout so it forced me to then just google the question right because Anytime you Google, you can pretty much get any question answered. And so there were so many articles that came up. The the Washington Post had one October of 2021. Why so many teachers are thinking of quitting. The next one was Fast Company, which was education faces great resignation crisis. Teachers quitting. Ed Week, teachers are quitting mid-year. It's leaving some schools in, let me just finish what it says, in a lurch, right? The next one was the Wall Street Journal. Teachers are quitting and companies are hot to hire them. There was even one in the Forbes, in Forbes, January 4th, that said why education is about to reach a crisis of epic proportion. Everyone is writing about this. Yet when you turn on the TV, you don't hear this as an outrage. Yes, we hear about the violence. Yes, we hear about the surge of COVID. But we're not talking about the actual crisis and state of emergency that our education system is facing right now. So let's dig into this because I don't think that we are actually thinking about what the long-term effects will be. Right now, we're playing triage, meaning... As long as we get to the end of this June or end of this May of 2022, we'll figure things out. 
and hopefully it'll get better next year. But will it? It goes back to the question of who cares? So I want to go back to one of the articles, specifically Fast Company, because, you know, if you have never read Fast Company, it's more of a magazine that focuses on entrepreneurs or large organizations. Um, And education is a business, but people don't tend to cover that as an industry in these type of magazines. So I'm always intrigued. I actually read Fast Company. But in this particular article, it says public schools are facing an existential great resignation of teachers. And this was February 1st of 2022. I'm going to start with reading one of a couple of the paragraphs. The country's largest teachers union, the National Education Association, NEA, released a new poll today that it conducted to gauge the amount of stress on their members' shoulders right now. The results suggest that a full-on sector-wide breakdown could be on the horizon. The survey shows that 55% of teachers now say that because of the pandemic, they're going to leave the profession sooner than they planned. When the NEA asked the same question last August, which would have been 2021, the number stood only at 37%. So let's take a pause for a second. Last August, only 37%, still one in three teachers were ready to go, right? It has now jumped to one in two teachers, 55%, right? Are now saying because of the pandemic, they're ready to leave the position, their um, profession sooner than later. Meanwhile, data elsewhere suggests that interest in the teaching profession has been waning for a decade for a variety of reasons. The low pay, difficult working conditions, and little to no room for career advancement. I would dare to insert, it also started to come around when we did this whole jump to do Common Core. Because 10 years, that would be around the time that Common Core came into um, fruition And schools had to transition in terms of standards. And it was a great undertaking of which many were not prepared, professionally developed. And to this day, there's still questions about what does that really look like in the classroom? But I digress back into the article. But so it says that by the center of here's a 2019 study by the Center of American Progress showing that enrollment in teacher prep programs have plummeted by more than a third since 2010, yielding as many as 340,000 fewer future teachers. So less than, (laughs) there's less than 340,000 future teachers. We were already down by, I believe the number was 10 million teachers globally, okay? But whatever accounts for the staff shortages, the situation has been made worse by the pandemic. Federal data, the the NEA notes, shows that American public schools have 567,000 fewer educators today than they did pre-pandemic. And the education sector is presently hiring 0.57 people for every job opening. So for every two, you only hire one. But there are thousands of jobs, which means that we are always going to be half of the actual labor force that's needed. But we were already at a deficit. So here's what I'm going to say, folks. We're in a definite crisis. 
So the question begs, who cares? Because the outrage is not well noted in terms of you see a public outcry in the media. We don't have any protest around it. We don't have any advocacy that is very resounding. There's conversations. There may be unions having their fight. But at the end of the day, let me tell you where it all has to start. The first line of who has to care about this are the parents. We all know that the first teachers that children are introduced to are the the people that they live with, right? So that's the guardians, that's their parents. Those are the people that surround them with knowledge. Now I'm not talking about certified knowledge because we know that when children go into schools, teachers are certified for specific content that helps prepare children really for them to navigate school systems as it relates to assessments a lot of times. But teachers also impart knowledge for children to navigate their futures, right? To get the skills that they need, both soft and hard skills. But parents have to recognize that they have a responsibility in terms of how do you show up to advocate for your child? The pandemic was eye-opening. We got to see parents love up on teachers, you know, give praise. The parodies came out in which parents were literally saying like, oh my God, teachers are so great. They don't get enough money, (laughs) right? Like we need to praise them all the time. And then all of a sudden there was the shift of, okay, so my kid needs to go back to school because they need to learn. I can't bear this responsibility. Because you realize, oh, I don't, I don't know this work. I don't know how children are being taught. This is not how I learned. And so what was considered revering the education industry turned quickly into, I need you to become the responsible party that needs to educate my child. Because that's your job and I need to go to my job. And I'm going to tell you this. I've been a teacher, I've served as a principal, but my first job has always been as a parent. And with that said, the questions that you as a parent would need to be asking would be every single day your child comes into the house, what did you learn today? Were any of your teachers out? Do you have all of the classes? Like, let me see your schedule. And I say that because you need to know what classes your child is taking. You need to know what they're required to take in the grade level that they're in. If they're supposed to have social studies and you're just simply saying, stopping at what did you learn today? And they tell you about math and English, but they can't tell you about science, social studies. They can't tell you that they had physical education. They can't tell you that maybe they had art or music. You should be leaning in and asking Well, who are your other teachers? You should have a list of the teachers because really from day one, you should have had a list. If there were vacancies, there should be an update as to what's going on in the school. Have we been able to hire these individuals? What your child is taking in lieu of this particular class? What are the plans of actions that are in place to ensure that your child is getting instruction? See, this is your child and yet you put them in schools. You're not supposed to 
not be accountable or lose the responsibility of asking, well, how are we preparing my child? Now, again, I want to be very clear. The principal can do but so much, but when you're not asking questions as a parent, you are also not advocating on behalf of the school to say that, oh, we need help. We need to support this principal. We need to ensure that we're getting a, a, a pipeline of teachers coming into this building. Now, how can parents be more active? Well, the question is, well, wh when are you coming to the school? Do you come to PTA meetings? Are you part of the school leadership team? Do you attend the board meetings where they tend to talk about the budget and they tend to talk about the next steps and what are some of the concerns? Are you a partner in your child's learning? Are you asking the teacher, how can I best support you? I may not know everything, but is there a website I can use? Maybe you don't have a computer. Maybe you don't have access to Wi-Fi. Okay, well, what kind of supplemental uh, books can I get? Or do you have anything at the school that I could use to help support my child at home? I say this because, listen, my mother was from Guatemala. She, well, let me say this. She is from Guatemala and her education was limited. She only had a sixth grade education. Spanish is her first language. So I had to learn really how to read and write based off of what I learned in school. My parents put me in a black independent school when I was two. It was not a preschool. It was not a school of play play. It was not a Montessori school. It was school. There was uniforms. We sat at a desk and we wrote even at two and a half. And I have the artifacts. Trust me. We were learning. My mother recognized that she had to ask these questions because she could not do it for me. She could not support me the way she needed to. My mother didn't read books to me. She tried her very best, but ultimately I had to learn how to read so that I could read out loud to her. So she could hear that I was developing phonetic awareness, that I was having some comprehension around the things that I was reading. So she did it. And she was a nurse's assistant and she was the one who was taking commands from the nurse and the doctors of the floor to make sure that this patient is taken care of. She didn't have agency over what she could do in terms of her profession. But when it came to me, she was full out involved and got extra books. She went to the teacher store and got books because she asked teachers, what could she get for me? She put me in programs. I went to school all year round. The only time I was on vacation was probably two weeks in August. And that's when we went away. My mother was there. So as a parent, we can't let COVID be the reason why you don't get involved because you have to care. So now I'm going to say the second person who needs to show care and regard. And it's actually twofold. There's the superintendent and the HR department. As a superintendent, what do you know about your schools and their numbers? And when I'm talking about numbers, how many of your schools have vacancies? What subject areas are the vacancies in? What is your schools? Uh, what are the current data points of your schools? Because you would need to know if you have a school that's been struggling around ELA, math, social studies, science, or any of those subject areas. You should have known this from before COVID. 
because you would want to make sure that the principal is recruiting or has some type of partnership in place to identify the best teachers or the best candidates who are certified in a specific area that is a deficit in that building. That's your job. It's not about saying the principal needs to have all things in place because when you sit down with the principal, when you're doing an evaluation, when you're doing a school review, you need to know what are the practices in place? What's the plan of action? And also as a superintendent, you want the best to be in your school. So what are you doing to guarantee that there are educators funneling into your program? The same way there is a, a school to prison pipeline, how are we creating a teacher to school pipeline? How are we ensuring that the very best are coming into our schools? What does your partnerships look like with alternative teaching programs? What does it look like with colleges and universities? What does it look like with your own um, school? Like when I say this, understand what I'm saying. Depending on the grades, right? So New York, it's usually uh, superintendents go from, they have pre-K all the way to eighth grade. And then there's high school and high school is under um, a different superintendent. But in other states, the superintendent is in charge of an entire district as it relates to a community. So I live in Georgia, it would be Cobb County or it'd be Alpharetta or it'll be, um, no, Gwinnett County, or it would be, um, DeKalb County, right? So they are in charge of all grade levels, K all the way through 12th grade. Okay. How are you tapping into your 12th graders, your high school students, and showing them the profession of teaching? Partnering with colleges and universities to ensure that young people are going into those local schools. Or it could be schools that are not local, but you have partnerships with them because I had partnerships with Harvard. I had partnerships with um, Yale. I had partnerships with St. George's University in Grenada. I had partnerships um, where I spoke to schools, you know, whether it was Bard College, Assumption University. So if I needed to, and they have educators that are in, let's say, um, up and coming teachers who are, ma you know, individuals who are major ring in the education profession, because I get so excited, y'all, I'm starting to get tongue tied. How are you ensuring that you're creating this pipeline? Because the best teachers are the ones who have gone through the system, who are familiar with the community. How are you taking your teacher's assistant, teacher's aide, paraprofessional, because depending on where you're at, they have different titles. How are you taking them and cultivating them so that they can become teachers? Because truth be told, because they follow children from class to class to class, those individuals are well-versed. Those individuals have great insight. They have teaching strategies that they're able to connect with young people. And I, I can only say for the ones that I've worked with. Now, I know that there are some who shouldn't even be in our schools, but that's a whole other conversation because the question is why we allow them to be in our schools. So I'm going to digress. But as a superintendent, you need to know this because you would want your district to thrive. And when I said it was twofold, it's because the question is, how is your HR director asking the question of those who are leaving through an exit interview? What could we have done differently? 
What are the reasons why you're leaving? And have that conversation because again, those are data points. Maybe it's because the teacher, it's just not for them. Education is not the thing that they want to pursue and that's fine. Maybe it's because the school environment is toxic. It's unsafe. There are no opportunities for advancement. Maybe it's because I'm actually transitioning into a higher level position as an administrator. Well, then we need to be finding out because there are some schools where there's high turnover because this principal is so great at cultivating leaders that they're constantly leaving. But do you know that? And then what conversations are y'all having with the principal about the school environment, about their needs, about what they're doing in terms of recruitment? Because sometimes it's like, there's no incentive for people to come into certain communities. But if you as a superintendent create a culture of what your district is about, along with your principles, what people get by being in this particular district, doing this particular work, it could be hard. It could be so challenging, but you know that you're transforming a community and those teachers are part of the process and you create opportunities where you build their capacity in terms of leadership or you build their capacity in terms of content knowledge. How are you doing that? Are you creating critical friends so that they don't feel alone? Do you have district-wide events? Not just for the end of the year, not just for the drama or the, or the marching band. What are you doing for the teachers, the guidance counselors, the social workers, the principals, the assistant principals, the school psychologists? Because it's, it's an entire school community and everybody's leaving. I just happen to be focused on the teachers right now. But let me tell you, leaders are leaving as well because the health conditions that they are facing is making them think twice. And just like myself, they have decided to choose them. So who cares? The third line I'm going to say is our elected officials. Let me tell you, when people are running for election, the top tier is always the education platform. This is what they're running on. We're going to get you more money for schools. We're going to get teachers paid more. We're going to get kids on grade level. We're going to close these achievement gaps. We're going to do all these great things. And then they get elected and you don't see them at a school until they have awarded money to a school for a new lab and they want to take a picture or um, the school is giving them an award and they want to take a picture. I don't see elected officials ever calling to say, I want to come into your school and I really want to see what the challenges are. And I really want to learn more about what's happening so that I can advocate. There's not a lot of elected officials who do that. I will say this. There was one. Um, there were a couple that when I worked as a principal. I would sit and consult with. I would talk to them about what the challenges were. And they would seek my counsel around how they should navigate in, in their talking points. But there was only a few. One in particular that comes to mind was most recently was Farrah Lewis. Like I'm no longer principal, but Farrah and I always had a great conversation about education, even before she became an elected official. And she continued that. So she was consistent and she was really about the work, but everybody isn't about the work. 
They should be up in arms because if children are our future and children are the pipeline to what can be next in terms of we always telling them they could be the next Barack Obama, right? They could be the next president. They could be the next Katanji Brown Jackson. You could be the Supreme Court judge. But can they, if you're not even advocating for the quality of education that they can receive, can they become the lawyers? Can they actually run a government position so that they can actually aspire to get to that next level? You want children to become you and not so much become you, but have opportunities that is aligned to what you did or supersede what you did. Then you need to ensure that they're getting a quality education and you're advocating because that's what you were voted in your position for. But who cares? The next one I'm going to say is comes down to educators. Some educators, listen, y'all have to, I'm going to start with, cause teachers are the, the larger population when it comes to educators, right? They're the first line. They're in the classroom. They have a major responsibility. You have to create committees, develop your own agency, and you have to start demanding from especially the elected officials because one, you pay taxes, two, you vote, at least you should be voting, and three, you're in front of children every single day, so you should also be partnering with parents and saying, I can't do this by myself, I need your support. For those who have unions, what is your union doing exactly? Because there are some states, specifically, let me say in Georgia. I remember when I taught in Georgia and I asked the union, they told me, the, the, job, the school that I was at told me I had to work these after-school programs and I had to attend certain activities. And I was like, I have to? Like, you know, I'm like, wait, I'm not, <laughs> I don't have to do anything. And they were like, no, 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 you do have to. So I asked the union people, I was like, how does this work? Like, how am I told what I have to do? And then they asked me, where are you from? I said, from New York. I was like, oh, they said, oh, we're, yeah, we don't do the same thing like New York. We only lobby on behalf of our educators. I was so confused because lobbying means you utilize the money that comes out of my check to then put into campaigns so that you could get elected officials to vote in your favor for specific bills. Or if y'all need representation out in the public and agreements and all this stuff, and we're all in, um, in agreement, right? I can call on you. We need to do a press conference. You all are there. That doesn't help me my day-to-day -day work. So when this school principal is telling me I have to do something, that doesn't work. And I've never been that person because in New York, I was constantly working. I was working hours. I, you know, didn't have to work, but it was something where I chose to. I didn't have to. There's a different level of enforcement here. But even in New York, what is the conversation that's being had around teacher development, around the protection of teachers, around really recruiting um qualified individuals around holding districts and, 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 and school chancellors and school um, superintendents accountable for ensuring that teachers aren't burning out by making sure that there is a pipeline in place. 
How is how are the unions all after all doing their due diligence to recruit as well? Because you want not a revolving door of folks coming in the profession. You want people there for the long term. So who cares? School leaders are at their wits end. They have to manage the community. They have to manage the schools. They have to manage the expectations of the superintendent. There's so many mandates. And I will tell you as a former school leader, as much as we have power, we don't have power. We're constantly reminded beyond our building what we can't do. So if we don't get the support of the superintendent, there's nothing that we can do. Now, we try our very best inside of our buildings, but those type of relationships that have to be cultivated oftentimes have to be done by a superintendent. But I will say this. I recognize first couple of years of my principalship, teachers were coming in underqualified. And when I say underqualified, they were so green because they were first year teachers or they were individuals who were not connected to a community like Brownsville. So because they didn't understand the complexities, they didn't build relationships with the young people. And it became more about what they weren't doing at. And I'm talking about they being the children, as opposed to, are you reflecting on what you need in order to get this done? And I also drew off of my experience as a New York City teaching fellow that honestly, I wasn't prepared to walk into anybody's classroom and teach because I wasn't taught the essence of teaching. I wasn't taught practical stuff. I was taught theory. I was taught how to read a book and what some researchers said about children who were marginalized in poor communities and blah, 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 blah. But it didn't teach me the essence of teaching the vulnerability that comes with teaching, the self-reflection that comes with teaching, the moments where you have to just be honest and have a courageous conversation with yourself as well as the people who are leading you to say, I'm not prepared for this. I need support around this. Even when they're looking at you like, well, you're supposed to know. Well, I don't. Okay? I want you to understand that I took on the responsibility of partnering with the New York City Teaching Fellows because I felt like when I went through the program, I wasn't prepared and and principals weren't held accountable. It was just a matter of filling a vacancy and that was it. They didn't have an actual relationship. We also had the New York City Teaching Collaborative. So New York City Teaching Fellows was, you have already a bachelor's degree You're going to go into a program that's going to give you your master's, but you're working at the same time that you're getting your master's. So you're literally getting hands-on training, but you're not with a teacher per se. Because I was a special ed teacher, I had a collaborative team teaching classroom, which meant there was a general education teacher in there, but she wasn't my mentor teacher. Like when you go through a teaching program, the traditional sense where you actually are getting mentored. Now, I didn't have that. I was trial by fire. Oh, this didn't work. Oh, my God. Every day I cried. I was like, oh, this isn't working. And the teacher I was with at the time, who I love to this day, Dakota, she looked at me like, oh, they're giving you a free education in terms of your graduate degree, but you don't know. Oh, well. 
and I had to learn. The teacher collaborative program is you already have your bachelor's, but now you're going to go into this program and you're going to mentor in a classroom and learn from a teacher who's going to help you prepare lessons, who's going to teach you around the curriculum, who's essentially going to allow you to shadow them and prepare you to teach a unit in the classroom. And then you can start to become that individual who is very hands-on, very different preparation. I ensured that both programs was in my school and that I was directly involved in the training of those teachers and made sure that my teachers were trained to train those teachers. See how that works? So that when I had a vacancy, I could pull from the pool that was in my school that I was preparing them for. And so eventually what ended up happening is Knowing where these young people were coming from, Brooklyn College, Long Island University, um, they could be coming from Hunter College, they could be coming from Teacher College. Because I'm connected with these different schools, because you have Bank Street as well, now I could tap into the Dean of Education and say, hey, do you have any students who would be qualified to come and teach at my hall? That was my responsibility. Was it going above and beyond? Absolutely. But that's because I understood I want the best in front of my scholars. And it was hard finding people who were committed and loyal to the vision of my whole and not committed to anything else about, you know, oh, you call them scholars. They have this uniform. No, that's not what I was looking for. So. Who cares? So how do we move forward? How do we make this better? Because at this point, people have literally left mid-year. And unfortunately, at Mott Hall Bridges Academy, the school that I opened, because of change in leadership, folks have left mid-year. And you know what? There hasn't been a question of, why are you leaving? Of individuals who help open the school in 2010 for them to leave in March of 2022, where there's still three months left of school because they cannot take the environment. First question I asked, did anybody do an exit interview with you? Did they ask you, why are you leaving? Did they say to you, instead of leaving, we'll provide you with this as an alternative and the supports that you need? No. If you're not invested in your people, your people are no longer going to be invested. And this isn't about, but what about the kids? People die in positions out of stress. Folks have families at home who rely on them too. As a collective, again, it goes back to parents need to be active in this process. Superintendents have to be act, um, willing to step in. HR needs to be aware. There has to be a plan of action in place. That's not happening. So what, what is the cost of this, all of this? Well, not only is the money ridiculous in terms of every time we leave, lose a teacher, the money that is required to prepare a new teacher and to take them through the process of hiring, 
it costs more. It costs taxpayers dollars more. It costs more off of the principal's budget to do things that they need to do. But ultimately, the children lose out. Because guess what? If I don't have a math teacher and Ms. Johnson is the English teacher and Ms. Johnson has a prep period and I need Ms. Johnson to cover math, I'm now going to take Ms. Johnson's prep period where she's trying to prepare herself to now teach math. Ms. Johnson doesn't like math, so she's not teaching that class any math. She's going to have them read articles because at the end of the day, she's doing something that's educationally sound. But that child isn't learning math. There is a learning loss. And so we get to the end of the year. The state exams, they don't do well. They don't really have the artifacts and qualifications to show that they should move forward. But it's our fault, essentially, because we don't have a teacher. And I'm not putting the blame on the school or the principal. I'm just saying the child doesn't have the teacher. It's clearly not their fault. So what do we have to do? We can't hold them accountable for what they weren't able to get. So we move them along. And by moving them along to the next grade, when they haven't mastered the current grade, only creates more academic gaps. And when that child gets to high school, because if they've been in elementary and now they're in middle school, and then they have to get to high school where they have to deal with algebra, trigonometry, geometry, sometimes pre-calculus, depending on what they want to study. If this kid doesn't have the foundational skills and know how to solve problems, to think through word problems, they don't know formulas, they don't know substitution, they don't know basic computation, kids drop out. They get to science. It was all good life science, but now you get to high school, you got to learn chemistry. Chemistry is numbers, right? We get to biology. Biology might work because it's life science. But chemistry and physics, where you have to utilize math, oh, that's the difference. I can't. Kids drop out because they end up failing the classes. They feel like they're not good enough, but it's because they didn't have the skills. This is the long-term effect. This becomes directly tied to the school-to-prison pipeline. Because essentially our children start to feel the effects of failure or being pushed along without actually knowing or learning concrete information that they need in order to navigate through the school system. And then eventually if they want to go to college and then if they want to be prepared for a position, let's just say they don't want to go to college. They want a career. They don't have the critical thinking skills. They're not able to do anything that would allow them higher level of thinking that would allow them that even if they went into a career, they could eventually become a manager. But if you don't have those critical thinking skills, it's virtually impossible. So who cares? We all have to care. And I've become so passionate about sharing this because our children, 
they go into our school systems and they're so dependent on what we provide them. And it's a collective effort. And this isn't just about just the school and their staff members and the parents. This is a community issue because those children who are unprepared go back into the communities and they are not productive, right? If they're not working, they're not actually being able to become either a resource or help financially to pay towards taxes, to maintain um, the integrity of the community. You have a lot of children who become adults and because they lack skills and don't get a qualifying job or don't earn as much as they should, the cost of living is going up. They can no longer afford to live in their community. The cost of living is going up. They got to do something illegal to live in that community. There's a loss that we can never get back. So when we focus on our teachers, when we focus on our school leaders, when we focus on the school as a whole, and we show we care, we rally around as a community to say, we want to ensure that teachers have what they need. We want to ensure that we get the right individuals in the building by creating these partnerships. So let's start with that. Start partnering with colleges and universities. Start exposing young people from the time they're in middle and high school to even be teachers in the classroom. Let them lead classroom instruction sometimes. There are kids who really do well and understand and love teaching. Get them invested in the profession. Yes, all teachers should have more income. Absolutely. Push for that legislatively, locally, right? On the federal level, on the local level, but also start teaching young people entrepreneurship so that when they become teachers, they can have ultimate, like several streams of income. Because the reality is that there's not going to be this astronomical increase. That's not going to happen. But if we could tell, teach teachers how to leverage their skills, you like to do t-shirts, create a t-shirt line. You like to develop curriculum, become a, a curriculum consultant, or you develop curriculum. You like to tutor, create a tutoring service. There's ways in which we can prepare teachers so that they can also be successful beyond their classrooms. But we have to care because what's happening now, this crisis, you'll find that they're going to say, we're going to be bringing teachers from different countries into the United States. And I saw it happen in the early 2000s and even late 1999, 98, where there was a tremendous push to bring teachers from the Caribbean because they were well-versed when it came to the math and sciences and the same thing from the Philippines. And there is nothing wrong with that. But culturally, they're not prepared for the classrooms and they're not taken into consideration about what their needs are before they step into our classrooms with our young people. And it becomes a disservice because what they're expecting based off of where they come from and how children revere education is not what happens when they walk into our school building and then they end up leaving. And guess what? The cycle 
repeats itself because now you have a new crop of individuals who are brought here, who are given um, income, who want a better life, but would rather leave the profession. And I saw it happen time and time again. Even in the school, my first school that I worked at. So the next time you come across an article about the teacher shortage, the great resignation, the next time you hear a conversation amongst educators talking about the stress that they endure and how they're leaving, I want you to think as well, who cares? Who's helping to step into this moment right now? And who's going to care about the future of our children? Well, that's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I thank you so much. I look forward to our next conversation um, where, you know, it's all about rebels and disruptors getting into some good trouble. Thank you for serving time with me here in detention. Don't forget to subscribe and to tell a friend so that this way you're up to date on new episodes that will drop every week. You can also follow us on Instagram at Detention Podcast. If you want to learn more about my services as a coach, consultant, and keynote speaker, go to www.thelopezeffect.com. And let's stay connected on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by following me on my handle, The Lopez Effect. Lastly, if you have any topic ideas, questions, or comments, or want to sponsor future episodes, please send me an email at detentionwithdrnadialopez at gmail.com. All of this information will be in the show notes, so don't worry if you didn't get it down. I also want to send a gentle reminder to my disruptors and rebels. It's okay for us to get into a little bit of good trouble, but please take gentle care of yourself, be well, and never forget to choose you.